Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. That was Gregory Porter with Concord. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm extremely pleased to say, is serial entrepreneur Charles Dunstan, co-founder of mobile phone retailer Carphone Warehouse, you may have heard of them, and founder of broadband and TV provider The Talk Talk Group. It was while working as a salesman for communications company NEC, selling mobile phones to Vodafone and BT, who then sold them to other large organisations, that Charles saw a market that wasn't being addressed. The people most empowered by having a mobile phone were the self-employed or small businesses. In 1989, with £6,000 of his personal savings, Charles launched Carphone Warehouse with business partner Julian Brownlee from his flat on Maribone Road. A success from the start, the company floated in 2000 on the London Stock Exchange, valued then at £1.7 billion, and expanded into Europe under the Phone House brand and into America with Best Buy Mobile before merging in the UK with Dixons. In February 2003, the Carphone Warehouse Group launched TalkTalk, a cost-effective residential fixed-line service to compete with BT. My parents are still very happy. Their unique service proposition that all customers talk to each other for free forever. It's lovely to have you here. Behind this person, we'll talk about your businesses, extraordinary success, great British successes, great international successes. I mentioned the 1989 founding. Why? Why did Charles Dunstan decide in 1989 he was going to do this? What was, was it in your blood that at some point you were going to run your own thing? Yes, I think it, to some extent it was in my blood. And I did actually run a business at school that sold sunglasses and cigarette lighters and pens and stuff. My head of sales was Johnny Vaughan, who I was at school with, and... Was he well-behaved? No. I mean, obviously, as well-behaved as ever. Chatty. <laughs> Very chatty. Yeah. <laughs> he, he is, obviously, as you might imagine, an amazing salesman. Yeah. I'd always been interested in business and what made it work, and, you know, we, we learned a great lesson. The school didn't know what to do with it because they didn't want to stop enterprise, but they didn't want us ripping people off, so... We learned to have two sets of books at that stage on that we showed the school and one that was the real books with the real margin that we made. Which um, rumour has it was 100%. Yes, it, we doubled the, the cost price of everything. Yeah. <laughs> simple, <laughs> simple strategy. It's very simple. Yeah. No, and even better, we had, we had our great pitch, which was to say, so you just had like a pair of these, you know, photochromatic sunglasses or whatever they were. And Johnny would go and he'd say, great, no problem at all. We're getting, oh, they're really, really popular, those. Um, <laughs> We've got more coming in next week, but you're going to have to wait four or five days. Also, I'm afraid we've been let down by a few people where they've ordered things and, and then when they've arrived, that they haven't had the money to pay for them. So I'm afraid, because of that, we have to ask for a 50% deposit now <laughs> with order. That was our working capital to buy the stock, and then as we handed it out, we collected the profit. It was a beautiful, beautiful little business. And, and obviously until the, the school was saturated with rubbish sunglasses and <laughs> cigarette lighters. But... I think, weirdly, the most important thing was that I didn't go to university. Mm. So if you don't go to university, you haven't got anything to lose because you've got a job on your wits and I was a salesman and if it hadn't worked, you know, I'd have got a job selling something else. It wasn't as though I was on the graduate scheme at Morgan Stanley or, and I was going to give up something that would be very difficult to go back to. 
So I think that's why you find a lot of entrepreneurs mm. don't have very formal education and don't have great education qualifications. But gravitating towards sales then, back when you were 16, 17, had there been something in your childhood that you'd seen or that you'd thought about? I mean, I want to come back to the, the lack of formal education. I totally agree with you. I think yeah. me going to university meant that I'm sitting here and you're sitting over there. <laughs> a ser- no, but, but, in a, but a serious point, most of us don't sit where you're sitting. Yeah. And I think you're right, once you've got something to lose and yeah. you get that graduate role and that, all that, that, things do change. But if you go back a little bit, why was it when you were at school that you gravitated towards selling stuff even then? I don't know. I was just... Family? Anything? Family. My, my dad worked for an oil company. He was a very professional. There was always lots of people at our house. So I got a younger sister. We, we, we learned early on to be good at talking to adults. And there were always lots of people around the table. So we sort of learned the skills of communicating with people and what made them laugh and what they didn't like and how to be polite. So I think if you become a good communicator, then that's 70, 80% of sales really is to be able to empathize with people and get them to like you and get them to want to engage with you. So probably some of that I liked. I just was interested in business and why, why things work, why people did things, why, why something was where it was in a shop. I don't know. It just appealed to me. Perhaps my dad was very, you know, had a sort of very serious senior professional job and he'd been to Cambridge and that sort of thing. So you might say it was a reaction perhaps against that. I've just discovered, and you have too, that Charles Johnson is actually just a rebel. He just, he <laughs> I just, am a rebel. He's just hidden it. He's just done it incredibly well behind this very polite, charming <laughs> exterior. You were talking there about the sales piece and empathy and, and the exposition of what it takes to be a, a great salesperson. You make it sound very simple. You still get buzzed by selling stuff. What is that buzz? Yes, I get a buzz. I think perhaps also go back is that I went to boarding school. And when you're at boarding school... You basically spend your time fighting the system and whatever they want you to do, you you try very hard not to do it, whether it's the uniform, the food, going smoking, going to the pub, whatever, whatever. And that, I think, breeds a great rebellious nature in you to say, well, why not? Why can't I do this? And so when we set up Carphone Warehouse and we're very young, there was something about it where we tried to do sort of the opposite of what everyone else did and we used to always used to say when they zig we zag so we would do things so, so we were obsessed about the honesty of the proposition to the customer the fact we didn't pay our people in the stores any commission that they were just going to give advice and all all the sort of stuff in our big competitor weirdly was dixon's so whatever they were like our instinct was to be completely different to them partly from a principle that we didn't really like the way they did things and secondly, it was just funny and fun to sort of tweak them and do, do things that they thought were kind of anathema to running a good electrical retail business. So there's a bit of a contrarian in you yeah. on the one hand, and then it, boarding school sounds, sort of sounds like prison without, I mean, you know, there's that bit of working the system and then saying enough, we're going to do it differently. Totally. Yeah. But the, the ideas you had, the zigging when zagging, partly born out of the rebellious thing, but also partly because fundamentally the industry was a bit upside down. Yeah, and we were, you know, so we started it in right at the end of 89. You know, I guess Richard Branson was a sort of entrepreneurial hero to everyone. There weren't that many entrepreneurial businesses. There were kind of Julian and Sinclair doing Pret at the same time as us. A few of the, there'd been Pizza Express with, with Luke and... 
you and we knew all those guys. It was an interesting feeling that we were sort of pioneering people that could do things differently and you could be little and you could challenge the big people. And there was a subtle shift, I really felt, in the public whereby probably 10 years previously, you'd only go to big companies. You trusted Marks and Spencers, you trusted the police, you trusted the government, you trust... And there was a sort of thing where people were losing faith in big institutions and were prepared to give the sort of enthusiastic, cheeky mm. startup their money and their time in a way I don't think they would have done previously. Did you see that then or do you see that now that you're looking back? That, I think that... we saw that then. I um, did see that then. You did see that then. So yeah. you went, actually, it's good being the David. It's good yes. over here challenging the institutional yes. and, the, and the structural. And I, I, I mean, I must say at this point, you know, the mobile phone market just had the most explosive growth. So growth, you know, if you're in a very fast-growing market, it, it covers a lot of errors. It gives you a lot of permission to do things. So I'm not, weirdly, what, what the guys at Pret did is much more impressive is to stop people buying supermarket sandwiches and buy freshly made sandwiches because it wasn't, it was just doing something that already existed better. We were selling something completely brand new that everyone had underestimated how many people wanted. Mm. Being little, though, and obviously then you got yep. big, and I've, and I've heard you talk about, I'd rather have six people in my business than 10,000. Yeah, yeah. Don't tell yeah. me that scale is a good thing, it's complicated. Where do you go with that when you start to get bigger? What happens then as you realise you need scale, but you still want the intimacy and you still want to feel like the David? I mean, it's difficult. All businesses, as they get bigger, are a sort of increasing compromise, really you get more and more frustrated. I, I used to, we always had an upside down organization chart. So we had the people in the stores at the top and the, and the people that in what I called the support center that everyone in the store still called head office. And I tried really hard to make the people that worked in the middle understand they were only there to support the people in the front line. But it is, it's difficult. And I used to hate it that you know, our, one of our busiest day probably was Saturdays and you'd go into the support centre and there'd be really very few people working and that, that always, I hated that disconnect. So it, it, it's a compromise and I think sadly as you get older, you get more prepared to accept compromise and things not being perfect, whereas in your 20s you fight that, you just have that, have that zeal and belief. Stay me for much more from Charles Dunson, my business shaper today, founder of Coffee Warehouse and Talk Talk. He'll be coming back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we've got a taster from the Michigan Innovation Series. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. Natasha Knight invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry and starting your very own thing. In this clip focused on retail, we hear from Tamor Atagechi, founder and CEO of Papier, an online stationery brand. The Michigan Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishkon Derea. The main thing I would say is not to be afraid. I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't do things that they want to do. And, and the biggest reason for it is, is fear. Fear that they don't have enough experience. Fear that they don't have the qualifications. Fear that, you know, for some reason or another, they're not equipped to do something. And I think actually... You know, my biggest advice is is, is ignore all of that. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything in retail. I'd never worked in a retail company. I'd never worked in an e-commerce business. I'd never built a brand before. So you don't need any of those things. What you do need are some kind of core values, you know, perseverance and, you know, and also ultimately that real passion for actually building something from scratch 
which I think if you've got that, the rest will follow. When it comes to retail, I, I love being able to you know, sell to customers. I love basically being a consumer-facing business. And that's one of the nicest things about retail is you are delivering something that the consumer needs every day. Uh, and you get to speak to them and meet them. I mean, we don't have a shop. We're a digitally native online e-commerce brand, but we still get to see and know that there are thousands of customers every day that's using the product. And I think that's that gives you a real thrill. And everyone I know who works in retail just has that big buzz of knowing that they are delivering you know, tens of thousands of products to customers day in, day out. The Mishcon Innovation Series, in association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishcon Derea. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishcon Derea. It's business, but it's personal. You can hear all our former business shapers and enjoy them, I hope, on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, why not ask it to play Jazz Shapers? And there you'll find a taste of our recent shows. But back to today, it's serial entrepreneur Charles Dunson, co-founder of mobile phone retailer Carphone Warehouse and founder of broadband and TV provider, the Talk Talk Group. You mentioned earlier about not going to university and the informality, um, the kind of ploughing your own path and all that. That grit in the oyster, that sense of, well, I've got nothing to lose. How do you retain that, Charles, as you go through and you're one year and three years, five years, 10 years, 20, and now and now you are looking at young businesses and you're investing them. I mentioned five yep. guys, you've, you've got other stakes as well. Yep. How do you keep the fire burning? In one way, it's... It's easier because if you had some success, you can be more prepared to have some failure, you know, that, that you've made some money. So if you lose some money, you haven't lost everything. I think it's, I think it's probably about three years of Carphone Warehouse till I actually thought this might make it. It's really hard. It's hand to mouth. I didn't, you know, didn't pay myself for probably two years. And we started the business, I hope I'm allowed to say this here, but basically on Capital Radio. And in that, there was just Capital Radio and LBC in those And now days. the program ends. Thank you so much. For... <laughs> but we would put an ad on Capital yeah. and the phones would ring and they'd ring for about three minutes and then it would stop. And then we'd look on the wall when the next advert was. and Pops up again. Pops up again and we would drive them mad. For this. We always wanted the 758 slot just before the news. That was the best slot and then I remember one day sort of just standing there and realising that the phone was ringing and people were coming in, even, even not when there was an ad. And I thought, oh, actually, this thing has got a bit of its own momentum now. It's sort of becoming, it's having some fame in its own right. But that, was, that took a long time. So there's a huge amount of insecurity when you start mm. something, as we did. So I think as you get, you get wiser, but you've got other things, you, you can accept some failure, but... It's hard to have the passion that you have in, the, yeah. in, in your first ever little baby business. This may sound weird, but when I was preparing for this, I kept coming back to Rudyard Kipling's If yep. poem. And I don't know yeah. why. I don't even know if, you're, if it's... I a, know it, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you'll know it, but whether it, it, it resonated because it strikes me that for those first three years, you're charging ahead and you don't know. And then you get this thing, you suddenly go, hold on a minute, this is going to be super successful. Did you in your wildest dreams, not, not that moment, I'm sure that yeah. took a lot longer, yeah. but did you in your wildest dreams, Charles, think it would be as successful as it has been no. or that you would be as successful as you have been? No, not a, I mean, not at all. And the thing is, the mobile phone business always grew bigger and bigger than anyone imagined. 
I think when the licenses were first given, the government who were li licensing them thought that ever, ever there'd be 400,000 mobile phone users in the UK. So the whole thing was a sort of constant surprise to people. So it started off with self-employed and business people. Then I remember it was a thing about, well, what if you break down? So it became this sort of emergency thing that you had a phone in case to keep in touch in case something went wrong, and then it obviously grew and grew from there. So, no, the, I don't think you ever, you don't ever relax. You don't ever sit back and think, Phew, great, we did it, we made it. And there's always the next thing and the next problem and to overcome this. And I think probably most successful people spend a lot of time focusing and worrying about what's wrong, not what's right. Try not to worry too much about what's not right at the moment, because <laughs> hopefully you're enjoying this. It's Josh Schaefer's <laughs> and Charles Dunstan's with me, but quite right too. It's surely a characteristic of the people that I have on this program that indeed they are still worrying about stuff and making sure it works. So the success comes and we're sitting here now and you can look back at going public, going private, doing all these things, spinning things out, all that stuff. And obviously the money that, that comes with that. It's more than financial security. I think, yeah. I think it's something else. You strike me as someone who's full of principles, the work that you do, which is not about the money, the, yeah. the fact that you want to, to do things with your time that you feel are, have good attached to them. What is your relationship like with money as it relates to politics? And I don't mean parties, and I know you've, you know, yeah. just, just in terms of that, because I'm, I'm really interested in how you see the impact of politics today. We talked about the, the breakdown, if you like, of, in the late 80s of the belief in institutions and the belief yeah. in the big beer moss. How do you see the role of politics now in the state that we're in, and in terms of what you can do as a, as a business person of note? I think as a rule, and I, I sort of get frustrated when everyone always seems to spend their lives saying the government should do this and the government should do that. And I don't think the government can do all these things. And, and governments are, used, you know, as a rule, pretty useless. You don't ask civil servants to do stuff. They, you know, they're so risk averse. There's so many of them. It's all so complicated. I think the most important thing the government needs to do, certainly in the, in the business world, is just get out, just get out of the way and just let people get on with it. So I don't... We always had a rule uh, in common. We never, we never were a member of any trade body. We were never a member of the CBI. We are never a member of any of these things. It's just like, no, we're happy. We'll just... We'll worry about ourselves. We'll plough our own furrow. And I'm not going to get dragged into all this nonsense. And the older I get, like the policemen getting younger, they, they all seem to get worse... Right, I used to, you know, used to look up to some of these people, perhaps, and they all seem to be worse now. So I, I very much just do what I can do, get on with it, and don't get involved. And the people that you choose to do things with and get on with it, whether you're investing through your, your investment yep. in vehicle or, or the people over the years that you've worked very closely with, what is it that you gravitate towards in other people? It's a, we're a gang, just people that like one another think in a similar way and you know we just enjoy enjoy working together we laugh we laugh a lot about it we work hard we try and be you know we think we're smart but not always smart you must feel a bit smart though i mean you may have thought you might be smart in 1989 now looking back you go well i've got some track record here charles must wake up in the morning and go well charles can't be too bad and too shabby at this uh, or doesn't it work like that I for you i don't know that it does work like that i'm a good door opener and I have a you know my sort of re slightly rebellious imagination I've got other you know other people so you know one of my 
business partners, Roger Taylor's a sort of very financial legal. So he's, I think the great thing in our relationship is he, he weirdly thinks what I do is quite clever. And I, I really think what he does is very clever. So there's a sort of, there's lots of mutual respect. And has um, that been the way? And if you think about the key relationships along the line, have you always had that? Yes. And I've got people that I really, really, really trust and you can really work with. You know, Andrew Harrison that used to run Carphone Warehouse, Tristia who runs Talk Talk. I mean, these people are, these are people I've known for years and years and we're just a tight group that really trust each other, can talk slightly in shorthand because we, we've done it together for so long. You know, and we, as I keep saying, we, we really don't get it all right, but it's fun. My, one of my hobbies is sailing and competing on a, on a sailing boat I've done for, for many years where, you know, you'll get anything from... Four of you on a really big boat, 22 of you, but you get a team together on the boat and it's you, it's everyone on that boat and it's you against the world and everyone's got their job to do. And it's the most fantastic feeling together. You're on this island, little island together, competing with with everyone else. Everyone has to do their job perfectly mm. in a completely synchronised way or, or it all goes inside out. That is a that's a wonderful the camaraderie and the fun and the joy of that I I absolutely love. That's a happy place. Really happy place. Yeah. Stay with me for my final chat with my guest. That's Charles Dunson, and we've got some little Richard too, and that's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business. Zippy but little number personal. that that was Little Richard with I Need Love. Charles Dunson is my business shaper. Just for a few more minutes. So here we are, you're sort of, I can't quite work it out, is it 30 years, 99.09? Yeah, Yeah, 30 years since, just over 30 years actually, since Carfin Warehouse. As I mentioned before, you've gone public, you've taken a company private, you've got this investment thing going on. How do you see the next few years for you? What does, if if you were to put metrics on the wall of the rebel, what does the rebel want to achieve? I think definitely never, never do a public company again. I think that's become a completely miserable existence and so different from when we did it in, yeah, when we went public in 2000s. And why is it different? Why do you think it's changed so fundamentally? Because I think there's, there's so many more rules about remuneration, about ESG, about the, the board. And, you know, I ended up, before we took it private, you know, some little guy from some big investment fund going through the CV of our non-execs. And so it was like, this is absolutely... That'll be the Ridic- analyst then, Charles. I may remember that moment <laughs> in recent history, personally. Yes, yeah, some 27-year-old. Nothing wrong with 27-year-old. Not, an analyst, not yeah. an analyst. This will be someone from the ESG group. Oh, some brilliant. big investment fund. Even better. Just yeah. who knows nothing. And it, the thing became so much about box ticking. You can't pay people as you want to pay them, and you can't really reward them. So it's become pretty thankless. And I... So think to those people, there's not going to be any interesting companies for you to invest in because all the good people are not going to put up with this forever. Anyway, so not definitely not public. I mean, I like smaller businesses in in truth. So more, you know, getting behind more just our business, investing in smaller private businesses. And it's a range. I mean, I'm just looking at Five Guys, Me and M, Strike, Osler Diagnostics. Ish- so some of them, so some of them, they're very different. So some of them... Yeah. Like Five Guys and Stripe, we will be very active right. in managing me and M or something. We're 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 an, an investor. investor. You're giving money. Uh, very, that's very clear. Yeah. Um, and you, do you like that variety as well? Is that something that keeps you interested in terms of bigger interest? You know, time wise, less. Is, yes. is that intentional? 
Or is it just Yes, it is. And also just what Claire has done with me and M, her sort of resilience and persistence and drive is so fantastic. It's a joy to support someone like that because they're much harder on themselves than their investors ever would be. You don't want to be a passive, a sort of passive investor where you don't, you've got to have real faith, in, I think, in the management team and what they're trying to do and the business. So you need to, you need to be invested in it. You need to be passionate about what they're doing. And then other businesses, interesting, it doesn't matter if you have a large stake in them, it doesn't matter how small or big they are, they all take the same amount of time. Yeah. In fact, the bigger businesses, so something like Five Guys, which is, does so incredibly well, probably takes less time because when things are going well, you don't have to get involved as much. But that's the real fun. And, you know, Strike is a great example of, of my sort of rebellious instinct. Every estate agent in the country hates Strike. We sell houses for free. <laughs> it, it, we literally put it driving a coach and horses through the existing model. And it's, it's challenging to make the economics of it work. But it's, I love having something which is an, a really ridiculously audacious claim in business. We will sell your house for free. No quibble, no nothing. People are like, what? How can you possibly do that? And like, well, let us show you. I love that. Um, and, I, and I'd quite like upsetting the establishment of an industry. Does it actually just literally put a smile on your face? You can see yeah, it. There's I a smile on my face He's smirking here. It's like, okay, I'm just going to poke them. Because that sounds like the guy who set up Carphone Warehouse. It's exactly the same. Exactly. It's, it's still in, it's he's still still in there somewhere. He's still there. He's <laughs> popping up. He's popping right up. He's bobbing here. Yeah. That's fun. It's, so it's fun poking, but also... Um, it's not just... It's not poking. Not poking, it, no. it's, it's doing something... Having a proposition for customers that is so extraordinary, they almost can't believe it. The average person will spend £6,000 selling their house. Mm. That's the agent fee. You just go, that's a new kitchen for you. That's whatever. You just don't have to pay it. You don't need to because everyone's finding their house on Rightmove now and Zoopla. So half the job the agent used to do, which was to sell the house, they don't even do anymore but they still charge the same amount so it's absolutely ripe for reinvention so things like that yeah i i, I love doing that and if there's one thing that you could tell a young budding entrepreneur or someone thinking about doing it what would be the one thing that they should be doing above all else i think you've got to have a you've got to have a point of difference you've got to have a reason why your thing is better than someone else's you just can't be the same You've got to have something that stands out and makes it different. And I feel like too many people start trying to do things that are the same as everyone else. It's a very crowded world. It's very hard then to articulate to people why they should come to you unless, unless you've got a hook to hang it on. One of the interesting things of, of Five Guys also is this comes from the founding family, not allowed to advertise or do any PR. Their rule is they only ever want someone to go there because their friend, someone they know, mm. recommended it to them. Their children, so, in my case. Exactly. but they fries, it, they, are, there's a lot of fries. A lot of fries. But then you get an authority yeah. Yeah. out of that in the relationship. And I think particularly young people are so sold to now that they end up feeling they discovered the brand, not that it was sold to them. So that's also a very, a very interesting change that I'm sort of witnesses, where you, you simply let the proposition and the product be your advertising, and you put all your energy into that. It sounds so simple when you say it, 
and yet we all know it isn't. Yeah, <laughs> it's certainly it, not. It's certainly not. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you. Great pleasure for for being here, for popping up, <laughs> bobbing there still with the ideas um, and the focus. Just before I let you disappear into the ether, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So when I was growing up, I absolutely loved this song Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. I think it was the saxophone that I absolutely loved. And then sort of ironically, we opened the first ever Carphone Warehouse as a junction of, of Malibam Road and Baker Street. So it's always had a sort of special affinity for me in it. All our memories are rose-tinted. So I look back on those days. They were hell, a lot of them. <laughs> I look, look back on them with incredible fondness and the simplicity and the small size of the organisation. And, and this song always just takes me right back there. Jerry Rafferty there with Baker Street, the song choice of my fantastic business shaper today, Charles Dunstan. He talked about having not gone to university, he felt he had nothing to lose. A really interesting point about becoming an entrepreneur. He mentioned that growing up, he got used to talking to adults and how that has helped him become a great salesperson. A really interesting insight. He talks about fighting the system. He felt great when it was him against the world, whether that was sailing or whether that was coming up with the next category-breaking idea. And finally, he talked about having an audacious claim and a point of difference if you're going to set up your own thing. Really disarmingly simple stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a fabulous weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.